Hello and welcome to another episode of Scrubcast. I'm Eamon Amma. Joining me today is the delightful Mr. Gurab Sen, one of our consultant HBB and transplant surgeons here at the Freeman Hospital. Mr. Sen, welcome to Scrubcast. Thank you very much, Eamon. Well, thank you for coming. Um, today we'll be talking about a serious hepatobiliary problem. It's a complication of cholecystectomies. Cholecystectomies, as you know, uh, particularly laparoscopic cholecystectomies, are very common and a general surgeon will certainly encounter this complication at some point in their career. We're talking about iatrogenic biliary injuries. It's also a hot topic for FRCS exams. Um, Mr. Sen, these patients are usually in the prime of their lives, and they've got a full and productive life ahead of them. So bile duct injuries can have a devastating impact on the quality and quantity of, uh, of their lives. Um, I suppose my first question is, when you consent a patient for a procedure like this, what do you actually put as risk uh, or the incidence rates of bile duct injuries on the consent form? Yeah, thanks, Simon. I think uh, you have uh, made a very important point in the question is that um, it's a young, fit uh, patient we are talking about who has come in for this operation for a completely benign condition with the expectation that uh, they're going to have an operation majority of the time as a day case and go home next day and, and very soon will carry on with a normal life. And a bile duct injury completely changes that uh, that scenario. And as you have pointed out, it has got a significant impact on the on the quality of life. And, and there are large studies which has confirmed that the overall life expectancy is affected by bile duct injury during a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Now, the incidence of bile duct injury that we quote in the consent process is based on uh, predominantly, obviously, retrospective studies. Uh, in this day and age, it is laparoscopic cholecystectomy is the standard of care, and we quote uh, incidents of about 1 in 300 to 1 in 400, um, or in other words, about 0.3 to 0.4% risk of bile duct injury during laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Now, you did mention that, uh, obviously, this is the era of laparoscopic cholecystectomies. Uh, has the incidence increased since we moved from open to laparoscopic? I mean, we, we would like to think that it hasn't. But the if you again look at retrospective studies, most of the studies have shown slightly higher incidence in the laparoscopic era. Laparoscopic cystectomy has been around for how many years? It has been around now for... Um, well, since the eight, uh, mid-80s, wasn't it? 1985. Absolutely. Was so I think, uh, you know, uh, we are way beyond the learning curve all over the world now, isn't it? For yeah. So you would expect that the incidence would be same. But even now, I think uh, if you look at all the major studies, the laparoscopic cholecystectomy seems to have a slightly higher incidence of bile duct injury. Uh, in, and, and most studies suggest it's about 0.4% for laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And if you look at the studies for open era, it was about 0.2%. So yeah, you can argue it's double. But again, I think the total number is small. Uh, but for the purpose of exam in the FRCS, I think the standard answer should be that it is higher in laparoscopic based on, on the studies that we have out there. But that's an interesting point that you make. Cholecystectomy has been there for ages. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go through some numbers that you, you alluded to earlier. I mean, the first open cholecystectomy was done in 1882 by Langenberg, a German, and then just over a century later, the first laparoscopic cholecystectomy was done, again, you guessed, by a German, uh, uh, Eric mm -hmm. Mew, uh, in 1985. And we haven't got rid of this complication. In fact, as you say, over the last 
30 years or so, the risk of bile duct injury has plateaued. It's not gone any worse, but despite this learning curve, it's not gone much better, has it? Why is that? I suppose when we started off in the um, early years of laparoscopic cholecystectomy, there was a slightly higher incidence of, uh, you know, definitely higher incidence than open cholecystectomy to start with. Then we got better at the procedure. We identified uh, things to avoid um, and bad practices were identified. And I'm sure we are going to come to that um, uh, in the later part of this discussion. But I suppose just like any other procedure, once we get better at it, we start taking more and more difficult cases. Uh, so the clinical situation where I would convert 10 years ago, I probably would carry on doing it laparoscopic because obviously there is no doubt that if you can safely complete the procedure laparoscopically, uh, the quality of life will be better than an open procedure. So I think the initial high... Um, uh, in higher incidence of bile duct injury compared to open was uh, related to the fact that it was part of the learning curve. It's a new procedure, we're learning it, then we got better at it, and then uh, we have taken more difficult procedures. And that's what plateaued the, um, the, the bile duct injury. And for that matter, any complication rate, if you see in laparoscopic cholecystectomy, it has remained more or less the same over the past uh, several years now. So what you're saying is that we're pushing the boundaries of acceptable pathology that we will take on so we're doing more and more these hot gallbladders we're doing more and more of these uh, cases post pancreatitis for example or other surgical procedures and, and adhesions what about the anatomy i presume because we always presume that lap coli is the operation that the most junior doctor does and therefore because of the inexperience they are at high risk of causing injury but i read somewhere that actually inexperience only accounts for about you know less than 10% of causes. In many cases, it's actually an experienced surgeon who causes the bile duct injury rather than the junior. And it, so in many cases, it is actually mixing up the anatomy, whether it's because of the pathology, as you say, you've taken on uh, uh, more challenging pathologies, but the anatomy as well is also very challenging, isn't it? Are you trying to suggest that we experienced surgeons are as bad as the as the most junior surgeons? <laughs> I'm not. Ex I'm not suggesting anything. <laughs> no, I, I I completely agree with you. It is the experience of the surgeon. There has not been any correlation with the incidence of bile duct injury or major complication post cholecystectomy. Uh, and I think um, again, if you just think about the operating theater scenario, you have a straightforward gallbladder. The most junior surgeon, let's say, is doing it. Uh, there is no problems, identifies the anatomy uh, and carries on and completes the gallbladder. Uh, if there is a difficulty in the operation, the junior surgeon calls the the senior consultant or whichever senior surgeon is there. He comes in and carries on a bit longer and causes a bile duct injury. So you see, you can, you can think about it if you look at the scenario. There is no reason why the junior most surgeon should be responsible for most of the injuries. And you're absolutely right that the majority of the injuries in my personal experience that we have seen in this region and uh, we being the regional referral center we are involved with with management of all bile duct injury uh, over a, what is it it's three and a half four million population that we we serve and uh, it has not been the case that it's the junior surgeon who has caused the injury i think the main reason why we still see the injury is the difficulty in identifying anatomy and we will come to that in a second. And also, 
there is still a feeling amongst um, not just juniors but even seniors that conversion is a failure of the operation you know conversion to an open operation when you face difficulty is not failure of the procedure so i think what happens is that either we carry on laparoscopically when we are not sure about the anatomy and that should not be the case and the second thing is as you have pointed out anatomy is very variable especially around the, the hilum of the liver callus triangle the biliary anatomy is full of variation and the the arterial anatomy of the liver and the gallbladder is full of variation so therefore as long as we can identify it correctly yes you should carry on doing it laparoscopically but if you haven't uh, one must convert yeah so i mean as you mentioned there we call it bile duct injury but actually in a significant proportion of cases it's it's biliary and vascular injury yeah. associated with it isn't it and you're right it's a treacherous area um we we talk about normal quote unquote mm-hmm. biliary mm-hmm. anatomy that only happens i think in, a, in just over 50% of cases yeah, that's so right. so the normal anatomy is only 50% you are almost uh 50/50 likely to encounter abnormal anatomy what are the common ones what are the common ones that you've in your experience seen other people injure because they haven't quite assessed anatomy properly for um tell me something amen you mentioned about abnormal anatomy and incidence of normal anatomy is in about 58% of you know just over 50% of uh, cases you also mentioned about the associated vascular injury what do you think is the incidence of a vascular injury in association with a bile duct injury yeah good question have a wild guess i'll have, have a wild, wild guess i would say that uh, a vascular injury would is is no less than 50% of cases so you mean half the cases half of the cases of bile duct injuries will have so oh, okay let me rephrase that half the cases of significant bile duct injuries will have an associated vascular injury so if we're talking about a simple bile leak for example yes then probably not yeah but if we're talking about your classic strasburgs and we'll come to that later where mm-hmm. you know you've mm-hmm. cut the common bile duct instead and then you've gone straight back through mm-hmm. there's a good chance that you've taken vessel as well on the right side yeah i mean i think um it is probably not as high as 50% mm-hmm. but if depending on which large series you believe up to about one third so up to about oh. 30 33% of the bile duct injury will have some form of vascular That's injury it is probably the interesting thing is it is probably slightly more than that because when we you know if fortunately if the bile duct injury is identified at the time of the laparoscopic cholecystectomy and if uh, if a specialist uh, hepatobiliary surgeon attempts a primary repair you do not necessarily always assess for a complete vascular anatomy unless it's obviously injured there okay so you can subsequently develop problems like right hepatic artery thrombosis etc as a result of the injury which gets underreported because you have never assessed it at the time of repair so reported incidence can be as high as 30% 30 33% mm. so it is quite high and it is quite an interesting thing that being a hpb surgeon myself uh before i moved to hpb when i was a general surgical trainee i never seemed to see a right hepatic artery when i did a cholecystectomy when i became an hpb surgeon i seemed to see a right hepatic artery everywhere <laughs> uh, so it's not that it wasn't there it's just that you you, keep, you go looking for mm. it and you see it and you know that this can be a treacherous area mm. and and i'm sure there's a lot of right hepatic artery damage or injury which goes unreported if it doesn't cause any symptoms or it doesn't cause any adverse effect 
So the various different abnormalities of the arterial anatomy you must look for. The ductal injury that arises out of misdiagnosis of the anatomy or not identifying the abnormality at the time of surgery. The, the, the commonest one is not identifying the window between the cystic duct, common bile duct and cystic artery and I think we will talk about that a bit later on about yeah. the critical view etc. So the classical injury as you had mentioned a little bit before is when you have got a pull on the, on the gallbladder and you have tented the bile duct up, you identify the common, uh, common hepatic duct as the arterial mm. end clip it and then identify the common bile duct as the distal part of the cystic duct and clip that and, and what you've done is not you, you have not injured the bile duct you've excised the portion, excised of it, portion yeah? Yeah. so that's the classical thing mm. uh, that happens obviously the other common thing that we see is the right posterior duct joining the uh, instead of uh, right duct and left duct joining together the right posterior duct comes and joins distally into the common bile duct and without identifying that you can damage the right posterior duct quite easily if you're not careful about the anatomy there so for those non-HPV mm. uh, trainees out there, just, just to clarify, uh, the biliary drainage and the arterial supply to the right lobe divides into anterior and posterior. So the segments 8 and 5 are the anterior, the anterior and yeah. the segments 6 and 7 are the posteriors. And, and at some point, the biliary tree and the arterial supply will divide to supply each separately. So it's this it's this anomalous usually posterior, but sometimes anterior, duct that rather than joins the anterior before it becomes the right and then joins the left to become the common hepatic and then the common, becomes the common bile duct, it sort of goes rogue and goes on its own and joins further down. And it's at that point when you're trying to dissect around callow that you can divide that posterior um, posterior, posterior duct, duct uh, right, separately yeah. and obviously yeah. I'm sure most trainees will be aware of the variations of the uh, cystic duct whether it's uh, short and stubby or mm. you know a bit too long and running in parallel or actually spiraling either anterior or posterior to the bile duct to insert on the left side mm-hmm. of the bile duct rather than the right you can so, even get more than one cystic duct absolutely you? You, know, you can get uh, you know uh, two cystic ducts which I have uh, personally seen uh, and then you wonder, well, you know, am I, am I going to the bile duct? But, you know, obviously there are ways and means of trying to make the anatomy as clear as possible. I think uh, you're absolutely right. We have talked about a few different types of uh, aberrant anatomies that we can encounter commonly. But the key point is what you made at the beginning is that it's only about 50% of the patients will have what we think is normal. So this brings me perfectly to the to my next point, which is what would you advise that a general surgical trainee or a general surgeon do to minimize the risk of uh, bile duct injury? Obviously, we've mentioned experience. We've mentioned, you know, being aware of the anatomy. But I'm sure there are certain criteria for a general surgical trainee to look out for yeah. and to, to follow. I think it's very important that for a general surgeon, you need a rule of thumb which would make the operation safer for you, okay? It is uh, unrealistic to expect the general surgeon to be aware of all the possible uh, aberrant drainage of, uh, of biliary system because, you know, he or she is not going to do uh, a liver section and there's no need for, uh, for you to be uh, going into that much of details. I think most trainees are now taught the concept of the critical view, isn't it, Eamon? I mean, that's something which 
isn't it um, Steve Strasberg who introduced it is, it the, was, it the, was in the 90s uh, in the 90s so it's, he introduced this concept and he again went around the world talking about it and and I'm sure um, it has led to laparoscopic cholecystectomy become safer mm. in the hands of everybody really now so so the question is what what is the critical view the concept is that you would have two windows in between the cystic duct the common bile duct the cystic artery and the bit of the liver between the cystic artery and the gallbladder okay so that is the classical description of callus triangle isn't it when we read anatomy that's what callus triangle is yeah. uh, and and the, the the important thing about the critical view is that you get this view before you clip or cut any structure that's mm. the important thing so if you haven't got the critical view means you haven't identified the cystic artery properly and you haven't identified the cystic duct properly okay so that's basically what the concept of uh, critical view and as you rightly pointed out it was 1995 when it was first i think published the other important thing i mentioned that the, the callus triangle one of the sides of the callus triangle is the common hepatic duct yeah. isn't it mm -hmm. uh, there is no reason why one should go dissect that mm. okay because you will cause more damage you, you know even even though you haven't actually damaged the duct itself you can devascularize it if you dissect it too much the other uh, important concept is that in, in, in description of the critical view, it was said that there will be only two structures mm. going into the bile duct, uh, into the gallbladder, sorry. However, you know, all of us who do a lot of polycystectomy, we do sometimes find more than, <laughs> more than, one, yeah. more than two I mean, structures. You've alluded to the fact that you've had two cystic ducts, <laughs> but I'm sure on, yeah. on that occasion, you yeah. probably just wouldn't take it at face yeah. value and yeah. just divide. And, and also, the important thing is that, you know, you, you quite often would find that there are two, two cystic arteries. Mm. And, and that's not uncommon and the cystic artery can branch very early and yeah. divide into two and so however as long as you're you're aware of the concept of the critical view mm. you will do it safely without actually going towards the bile duct and going on the other side of it yeah and i presume if you if you've dissected one third of the gallbladder mm -hmm. off the bed at that point and you still only have those two structures it's highly unlikely yeah. because you're, you're past sort of hitting a right hepatic vascular pedicle here I and so, so you know, it's more likely that these structures are actually supplying the gallbladder itself yeah i think it's a very good habit to dissect the gallbladder off you mentioned one third of the whole length of the gallbladder uh, you know i am not so uh, fussed about how much you do it but one third is a good number you know which basically means that if you have taken the gallbladder off that much you're quite right you're beyond the point where you're going to cause any damage to the hilar structure or to the initial branches branches of the hilar structure. So I think it's a very good habit not to clip the cystic artery or duct before you have taken about one third of the gallbladder off from the liver bed. And uh, intraoperative cholangiograms, I mean, what's your take? It's, it's, I know it's contentious. I mean, again, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer for it. You know, when we were training, there were units um, where I have trained where they would routinely do intraoperative phalangiogram. The idea behind that was to delineate the anatomy. Uh, and then there were units which would do it selectively. How would you select? You would select patients who have had previous history of pancreatitis, previous history of abnormal liver function tests or jaundice, and uh, you would do selective phalangiogram in those, those set of patients. So one thing which changed it slightly was the routine use of MRCP mm. in patients who have got the second group of patients I'm talking about who have got a history of abnormal liver function tests or jaundice or pancreatitis. So if you do uh, MRCP, obviously, as you know, the MRI images have become much better now. If you have a good cholangiogram, which shows a clear bile duct, 
okay so if your indication for cholangiogram is to look for stones then a good mrcp would be yeah. as as good or if not better than doing a intraoperative cholangiogram on the other hand if the argument is intraoperative cholangiogram for the anatomy that's a different argument so that's not for bile duct stones mm. okay you know i will put it right out there in the beginning that i'm a in the selective group okay right. so i do selectively but i i can understand both arguments the reason i do selectively is for you know if required if the anatomy is not clear and i want to clarify the anatomy i will do a selective cholangiogram if there is a problem in interpreting the mrcp finding from before i would do a cholangiogram or if the patient hasn't had an mrcp for some reason and there is a good indication for doing it like a history of pancreatitis mm. i would do it my argument against a routine cholangiogram is that the benefit of cholangiogram is in the ability to interpret the result okay yeah. you should be able to see the cholangiogram and be able to interpret what the biliary anatomy is there and if you're talking about that 50% of patient who have got several abnormal anatomies i think it confuses the issue for most general surgical trainees and general surgeons by doing a cholangiogram on half the patient who have got completely abnormal anatomy okay yeah. so that's why i personally do not do it but if you are a unit which do routine cholangiogram i think uh, you know you should be able to interpret the results correctly and take actions according to the cholangiogram findings and certainly yes if you're not in a unit that does it routinely you will fall into those pitfalls where for example you've had a a sphincterotomy and dye is not sort of finding its way to the top and therefore you're doing almost a, a partial view of the biliary tree rather than total because you're just getting everything spilling back down into the duodenum. Yeah. Um, so yes, intraoperative cholangiography, if necessary, and if a unit that does it regularly. I think we talked about conversion earlier, and I think that you know we cannot uh, stress this more that if in doubt and if the, the clinical need is there, convert. Yeah. If Absolutely. Necessary. I mean, I think, uh, again, this is uh, uh, my personal view. I follow a simple rule of thumb when it comes to conversion. Mm -hmm. If you cannot delineate the callus triangle anatomy, you should convert. I mean, uh, you know, in whichever sensible way you're trying to delineate yeah. the anatomy, I, I, I don't mean to say that you keep on dissecting in the hilum for... Mm -hmm. What I think is not good for the patient is that you convert after four hours of laparoscopic surgery. Mm -hmm. But then you probably have caused a lot of damage before you have converted. Yeah. Okay, so I'm quite keen to convert early if I cannot get the critical view. And there has to be a sensible amount of time you spend in getting the critical view. I also feel that if you have got the critical view and you have safely clipped or ligated the cystic duct and artery and you're having difficulty taking the gallbladder off from the liver bed because of inflammation, then you should persist because mm. you are going to give all the benefit of a laparoscopic surgery if you can complete the operation laparoscopically but you know do not be adventurous in callus triangle if you cannot get the critical view and you should convert and another point and i'm, and I'm purely speculating here the reason why the incidence of bile duct injury is higher in, in in laparoscopic compared to open is that anything to do with the fact that it is fundus first for example in open surgery which is technically more challenging laparoscopically and probably inherently safer and it's sort of easier to control and to perform a subtotal or a partial cholestectomy if required 
or is it, is, or is that sort of normalized in this day and age? I think, I think it must have normalized in this day. That's my view because if you think about it, when we learned open cholecystectomy, we used to do it exactly the same way as we do laparoscopy. We did get the critical view first before going on. Yes, it is easier to do a fundus first open mm. than a fundus first laparoscopically. However, by doing fundus first dissection, you do not necessarily always take away the risk of a bile duct injury. As we all know, the delineation of the callostrangal anatomy is the key issue. And we are going back to the same point over and over again, I think. But in, even at the risk of repeating it, if you cannot delineate the uh, callostrangal anatomy, whether you're doing fundus first or partial or whatever, uh, then uh, I don't think in laparoscopic and open that should be should be different. Mm. You know, I, I do, however, feel that doing a fundus first dissection laparoscopically is technically more challenging than doing it in open. So so that, that factor definitely is there. There's other thing which, you know, again, in the same sort of a, a surgical strategy as, as fundus first, is this concept of doing a partial cholecystectomy in difficulty. And that has become, again, quite common. Mm. Uh, and I think... Definitely, it's a safer option than trying to do a cholecystectomy without understanding the anatomy. But there are problems of partial cholecystectomy. If you do a partial cholecystectomy laparoscopically, and we are not sure as to how much of the gallbladder has been left behind, there is a substantial number of patients are now representing with symptoms later on because of the remaining gallbladder either has stones in it or has got ongoing inflammation and giving similar symptom as it was pre-cholecystectomy. Would probably double the risk of surgical uh, hostility. Yeah, when you, when, you, when you do another procedure exactly. again. Yeah, of course, yeah. So this brings me to a point which is probably interesting at this stage for trainees uh, taking their exam, which is the, the new technique that's currently being trialed. There's a Dutch trial called the Falcon trial yep. that talks about the NERF cholangiography, which is not our standard, um, you know, stick a, a catheter into the cystic duct and then squirt a bit of dye and have a, a guess at the anatomy. Mm-hmm. But this is more intravenous uh, fluorescent dye that goes in that gives you clearer, uh, well, we, we, we're not quite sure, but it's, it is thought to give you clearer biliary anatomy earlier on at the time of cholecystectomy. But there is a randomized trial now called the Falcon trial. It's a multi-center trial. I'll be I'll be very keen to see the outcomes, and I think it is about middle of uh, 2020 when yeah. you are getting. Yeah. Uh, we, we should be getting the outcome of it, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason I'm quite keen to see what the outcome of this is that this uh, fluorescent scholangiography is is addressing that bit of the um, argument for cholangiography. The bit of argument which is for anatomy is going to be much better, I think, mm. personally, than sticking a, a catheter into the bile duct, into the cystic duct, uh, without actually delineating the anatomy. Yeah. Because you do not know where you have made the cut if you don't know where the anatomy is. If you are totally confident that you are putting the catheter into the cystic duct, then then you are halfway there, isn't it? You yeah. know? So going back to my previous argument that I do not think that delineating the anatomy by doing a perioperative cholangiogram is a great idea. Mm. But I think a fluorescent cholangiography where you're not making any entry into the biliary system physically is much more of a lower risk uh, cholangiogram which would allow us to see whether that reduces the incidence of biliary injuries. This may reduce the plateau. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe it will, yeah. 
We'll just have to wait and see. Right, so moving on to a topic which uh, will be probably more of interest to HPB trainees. There have been a lot of classifications over the years for bile duct injuries. Could you tell me some of the, the exam favourite classics? Yeah, I mean, um, Eamon, whenever you're doing well in the HPB section of the exam <laughs> and you have got a patient and on a discussion about bile duct injury, you will be asked about classification. Okay, well, that's so, not me then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll turn it back on to you to see. So what are the classifications that you know of for, for classifying bile duct injuries? Okay, so um, so the, the, when we say classic, uh, the first thing that springs to mind is the bismuth classification or the bismuth colette yeah, yeah. Uh, classification, not to be confused with the bismuth classification of hyalocalangiocarcinoma, which we had discussed in a previous episode of Scrubcast. Um, so the bismuth classification talks about strictures rather than mm-hmm. injury. So we're talking about something late, and it describes the stricture in relation to the, the hilum or the, or the biliary confluence. So you've got the type 1 bismuth mm-hmm. uh, strictures, which are further away, so more than 2 centimeters away. From, from the, the hilum. From the hilum. Yeah. So you, we're talking, you know, distal mm-hmm. common hepatic or common bile duct strictures. And then you've got the proximal common hepatic duct strictures, but they're not at the hilum. That's class 2. Uh, and then you've got the class 3, which is in the hilum, but actually if you squirt contrast into one side of the hilum it will flow through to the other so the the actual uh, left is, right uh yeah hilum is, confluence intact. is intact. intact yeah that's and right, then that's number four three. is is that you've got that that confluence disrupted but this is all based on uh on strictures uh, rather than injuries leaks things like that so that was one of the main problems with the business classification sorry i forgot to mention there is a class five where you've got a stricture in the in the sectoral commonly the posterior the right posterior um, duct. That's a type 5 stricture. That's a, that's and as you quite five. rightly pointed out, Eamon, that this is based on strictures and not necessarily leaks. Uh, and um, it's more in in line with the late identification of bile duct injury, Absolutely. I suppose. Yeah? So, so that's the way bismuth classification was, was done. And, it, and it's, it's, you know, this is almost certainly because this was in the pre-laparoscopic era where injuries would be detected later on. Um, and so, you know, in comes Strasbourg uh, with the Strasbourg classification or the laparoscopic answer to bismuth. So that's a more comprehensive classification and it takes into account these limitations. So, you know, if you've got a partial stricture, for example, if you've got a leak um, or if you've got a branch sort of right or left injury, all that is encompassed in the Strasbourg classification. So it's just to go through the Strasbourg classification very quickly... It's from A to E, and yeah. just to make it easier, E is basically bismuth, but transsections rather than strictures. So E is E1, 2, 3, 4, 5, just like you had with, with bismuth. So Strasbourg E1 would be a distal CBD or CHD uh, injury. E4 would be that you've got the hyalur confluence disrupted. But going back to A, B, C, and D, Strasbourg's, uh, you've got A, which is the common one, where you've got an injury in the cystic duct or the gallbladder bed uh, that causes a leak that you can notice at the time of surgery, sometimes afterwards. Then you've got Strasbourg B, which is where you put a clip on a right aberrant duct, a right sectoral duct, but you don't transect. That's a B. And so that is less, I believe, 
less severe than actually transecting a left because now you no longer have this biliary dilatation on that side that you can definitely. deal with. Yeah, definitely. Um, so a, a Strasbourg... So where yeah. you have got a transection exactly. of the right aberrant ductal system, right posterior or whatever. And then, and then a D is where you've got an injury to a major bile duct, a lateral injury to a major bile duct, which obviously will require uh, major surgical correction. So just, just to summarize the Strasbourg again, uh, so an A is a cystic duct or a gallbladder bed leak. Uh, a B is where you clip but don't cut a right aberrant duct. A C is where you cut um, and therefore you have no occlusion distally into the right aberrant duct. Uh, D is a lateral injury to a major bile duct and then you've got E which is uh, similar to your bismuth, so E1. But with transection. Exactly, but transection rather yeah. strictures, 1 to 5. The important thing about the Strasbourg here, Eamon, which you have, have to emphasize, is that as you go from A to E, it is more major or more complicated injury. It kind of gives a nice little um, gradient algorithm. of uh, mm. algorithm for mm. you to remember that, you know, a, if you see a, a cystic duct stump leak or a, or a gallbladder big pile leak is the easiest one to manage. Uh, and that's A, uh, to a transection of the bile duct in E. Uh, and if you look at the transection of the bile duct, the commonest, I think, in all the major uh, reports that you can you can go through in literature is E3, mm. which is at hilum, but confluence intact. Intact, right, right. Okay, so that's the commonest incidence of it. So for the exam and also for the most clinically relevant classification, which we all tend to follow, is the Strasbourg classification. Mm. I think because it very nicely summarizes the type of injuries that we have to deal with and the clinical significance of it. Mm. As a, as a non-HPV trainee, you must be doing quite well if you're being asked about the Strasbourg yes, classification. Yeah. If you are asked to uh, go through the Strasbourg classification, you have done well in that, that table, definitely. And, and and again, just for completeness, I'm going to mention the Stuart Way classification, which is more a an observational classification based on the frequency of occurrence of injuries. But uh, yeah, so that's a class one to four, and uh, you know you'll find that in in, in uh, much of the literature. Um, so you're a HPV surgeon. You see this day in day out. For the unfortunate general surgeon who is faced with this problem. What do you talk me through how a general surgeon would act or should act at the time of identifying an injury intraoperative? Right. So that's that's the crucial point you're mentioning, Eamon, isn't it? Uh, you know, if if you have identified at the time of injury, isn't Which it? Is, that yeah, that that's is a the big if. <laughs> that is the crucial thing. You know, as, as you pointed out in the open era, I think most of the injuries used to be identified later mm. on. Uh, and that hasn't changed in the laparoscopic area. It is a bit better now in laparoscopic area. You probably identify more. But even now, it is about 15-20% of the of all mm. the bile duct injuries that is identified at the time of injury. So in the index operation. Less than a fourth. Less than a fourth. Mm. Less than a fourth. So, you know, way over 75% will be identified later. So once the operation has been completed patient comes back the next day with some symptoms or comes back in two days time with a belly full of bile mm. uh, so so the presentation is late so at the time of injury it's a minimum number of patients will be identified mm. and i think that's the crucial factor if you are vigilant you mm. will identify and what i as an hbb surgeon who specializes in repairing bile duct injuries would want to see more i, I 
you know, I want to see less bile duct injuries, of, mm-hmm. of course. But, but if you but, had to, but if make I a bile had duct to, I would want to identify them at the time of injury. Okay, yes, so the so that, best. Yeah, so I mean, the best outcome of repair, which we will come to later on, is if it is identified at the time of injury. Okay, okay? Mm-hmm. there are, however, reports of very good outcome in late repair of bile duct mm-hmm. injuries, but definitely. If you uh, go around the world listening to various different authorities on, on repairing, including Steve Strasberg, says that early repair gives you the best long-term yeah. outcome. And I definitely believe in, in that. And that's the experience we have in our unit as well. The problem, as I said, is only 15 to 20% get identified. Um, there is a lot of debate about whether, you know, are you a general surgeon? Are you a upper GI, HPV surgeon? Mm-hmm. The incidence is higher. You know, none of the studies have shown that you have got a higher, you know, significantly higher bile duct injury. But there are certain studies which, uh, uh, if you look at the complex gallbladders, look at, uh, as you mentioned, the word hot gallbladders, acute gallbladders before, um, the outcome of upper GI and HPV surgeons seems to be better. Mm. But say okay. you are, say, say you are a colorectal surgeon. Mm. Or, or an upper GI mm. surgeon who has been in the unfortunate position where they've mm. they've got a bile duct injury now. Mm. Um, would you advise they attempt to sort it out before Definitely they call not. you? Definitely not. Definitely not. And I think, uh, you know, it's all over the world. There is always a friendly HPB surgeon somewhere nearby. You know, obviously in, in the UK... And friendly, doubtful, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is always one, isn't it? So if you have got any difficulty during a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which a general surgeon feels that this is beyond the capability of that particular um, institute or that particular hospital or that particular surgeon, then definitely one must consult the HPB uh, unit local HPB unit. If you have identified a bile duct injury, yes, absolutely, there is no way it is recommended to attempt repairing it in the local center without involving the HPB surgeon um, or HPB expertise. I think the statistics that I've heard are less than one in four of these repairs are successful if attempted by the the person who's caused the injury, the non-HPB person, yeah, but yeah. more than three in four. Yeah. If that person is the HPV specialist. So, you know, the odds are, are highly stacked against you trying to attempt this. Yeah. And, and that um, comes out of all major retrospective studies on bile duct injuries. Mm. So if it is attempted at the time of injury by the surgeon who has caused the injury, the outcome is invariably very poor. Mm. And in this day and age, HPV expertise is always available. Okay. So there has to be a phone call to the local HPB surgeon to seek advice uh, as to what the next step should be. Okay. Well, what if that HPB surgeon isn't available? What, what should said surgeon do? So even if the HPB surgeon is available, what should the HPB surgeon do? So there are two aspects of it, okay? So there can be situations where the HPB surgeon is not available to travel because of whatever other commitments and, and there's an emergency in the base hospital. However, I can't believe there is no HPB surgeon available to be on the phone to give advice. Mm. So let's look at two scenarios. A scenario where all facilities are available, the HPB surgeon is free, not doing anything um, and, and sitting around waiting for the call from somebody who has made a bile duct injury. Then we would attempt a primary repair 
in the hospital where this has happened, which in other words means the whole logistics of traveling to that hospital. You know, you would need retractors and, you know, so, you know what we tend to do here is take one of the nursing staff with us who is used to uh, a slightly uh, a bigger procedure suddenly from, uh, you know, maybe a day case lap coli list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one scenario where the HPV surgeon is available, can go and take over the case, cancel the rest of the patients on the list and repair the bile duct injury primarily. The second scenario, as you were asking, is that what if the HPV surgeon cannot go? Mm. Then what you need is a discussion in order to get the best possible outcome for the patient. And the best possible outcome is to temporize it so that the patient can be transferred to an HPV unit Mm. for a definitive repair. Mm -hmm. And what would you want to achieve in this period of transfer? What you want to achieve is the patient to be safe, not to have... Uh, uncontrolled bile okay that's the way i look at it you know yeah. what you want is a controlled fistula that can involve various different things um if you go back to the uh, strasburg classification if it's a side wall injury you can argue that i'm going to put in a small t-tube into the bile duct, uh, and if that can be safely done and if the surgeon in the hospital feels confident to do that that is a good option put a t-tube into the bile duct and close and transfer the patient across or if that is cannot be achieved, if the anatomy is not clear, adequate drainage of the callus triangle so that there is no open bile leak. So drain adequately, more than one large bore intraabdominal drain and transfer the patient at a safe point so that the definitive repair can be done in the HPB unit. Now, even in that situation, we are very keen to do an early repair. So if the patient can be transferred within the first 48 hours, we would reoperate in order to get the bile duct injury repaired. What I would do in this kind of a situation is to perform a cross-sectional imaging to make sure there is no obvious vascular injury. Or in other words, do a CT angiogram or an MR angiogram. Mm. Probably CT angiogram is a bit better uh, than an MR angiogram. You know, it's an easier procedure to do. You get very good vascular anatomy delineated. But even then, as I said, I would recommend an early repair. Okay. The problem patient, I suppose, is the one where you haven't identified it. Yeah. Okay. But we'll come to that in a minute. So I think just to summarize this discussion, if a general surgeon in a peripheral hospital has identified a bile duct injury, the first thing is to contact the local expertise of HPV surgeon and then decide whether the HPV surgeon will come and repair it in the local hospital or there should be a mechanism of controlling the bile leak by intraabdominal drainage and transferring the patient to the HPV unit for a definitive repair. And is it too much to ask uh, the general surgeons to have made sure that they've actually converted by that point to an open operation and possibly performed an intraoperative calangiogram? Or is that something that can be left to the HPV team to investigate? Yeah. You know, I think individual surgeons, in, and by that I mean individual HPV surgeons, have slightly different views about it. I personally feel that if you have identified a bile duct injury during a laparoscopic procedure Mm -hmm. before conversion you must contact the HPP team and Mm. then make a rational discussion about how you're going to manage this because quite often in my experience the conversion happens via an incision which you may not find comfortable Mm. with when you go there you may not get adequate exposure for example, you probably, uh, you are an HPB uh, trainee, you would prefer to maybe make a, a reverse L type of a large incision mm. in order to get adequate 
uh, view of the hilum whereas if you have reached the peripheral hospital and you find a small subcostal incision you are kind of a bit stuck, stuck with it yeah. so i think at the time of identification whether it is already converted or in laparoscopic at that point have a discussion with the hpv surgeon okay and say well you are the hpv surgeon and you you either have caused this injury yourself or you've been called to an early potential early repair of an injury um not all injuries are the same uh i presume there are some injuries where you could look at and go this will be fine i'll manage this conservatively and there's others where as you said you'll have to make that big incision and do something do what so if it is a transaction you will have to do something okay <laughs> yes. let's let's look at one extreme of it you know if it is a strasburg e whatever mm-hmm. you will have to do something yeah there is no question of conservative management there mm-hmm. where would you manage conservatively yeah if you have identified a bile leak i suppose you can figure out whether it's a minor bile leak whether you think it's a cystic duct stump leak but cystic duct stump leak or or strasburg's a mm-hmm. um is usually something which gets identified late mm. isn't it you do yeah. not get a cystic duct stump leak and you just leave it leaking yeah. you know you would you would, you would put, put you would put a clip <laughs> on it and then if the clip actually uh, fails or slips out later on in a day or two that's when they present with with a strasburg a so type of a bite like you be called for one of for these. A, yeah exactly you you know i have never been called for a you know, <laughs> identified cystic duct stump leak and mm. it's usually at that time mm. uh, it's managed and if it is late presentation you again manage it conservatively but by endoscopic means and which mm. we can talk about but if you have got a major injury where there is a transection then you would you would go and do something definitive and obviously there are various different ways of reconstruction and and, and we can we can talk about that i mean if i can simplify that if i say there are two options and then you know mm-hmm. um don't quote me here this is a very simplified way mm-hmm. the two options are attempting an end to end repair mm-hmm. okay no, no don't look at me like that mm-hmm. and the end to end repair versus a hepatico jejunostomy mm-hmm. when would you do it an end to end repair okay so end to end repair of a complete transection yes okay i would never do it <laughs> um and i don't think any hpb surgeon doing a biliary reconstruction would do an end to end repair But, but why but, why not? Yeah, I mean, yeah absolutely. I'm and I, and I and I'm not disagreeing. I'm mm. just saying, you know, as a, someone who's done a bit of liver transplant, you know, you you do it for a transplant. Okay. You do an end-to-end duct-to-duct anastomosis. Yeah. So this is a question in HPB and liver transplantation which I have never managed to find the rational answer for. So, you know, I I thought you wouldn't ask, but you're absolutely right. We do an end-to-end biliary anastomosis in liver transplantation and there is an advantage of the end to end repair you still have got access to the biliary tree by ERCP yeah. so if you think about liver transplantation when we have a leak from an end to end repair or a stricture in an end to end end to end anastomosis mm. you know we can go and dilate it we can put in a stent and all sorts yeah. of things can be done however the important thing about a complete transection is the vascularity mm. of the proximal end of it and that's what worries us of putting in an end to end repair because the incidence of stricture in that is very high and we you are talking about a long term outcome of biliary drainage in a relatively young fit patient so you what you would want is a complete optimum repair mm-hmm. with the best long term patency 
Okay, so if you're thinking about the best long-term patency, then an end-to-end repair is not going to it's give you right. that. You know, the incidence of stricture will be very high. Okay, okay, and, and it, so it is it's because it is because of the associated vascular injury. It is, I, I, I presume, and you, and in some cases, you know, as as I mentioned earlier about the classic Strasbourg, you've actually resected. Yes. Out of the duct, so yeah, it's going to be under tension. This so you know, if you have had a classical injury where you have excised a portion of the duct, then definitely having an end-to-end anastomosis without tension is almost impossible. Mm. Well, that leaves us with one option. That leaves us with one option: a hepatopagenostomy. Uh, so biliary reconstruction using a loop of power is something which we always do. But there are a few principles that needs to be followed in doing that reconstruction because this is not the easiest biliary reconstruction you would get especially when you're doing it in a primary setting because it is almost always an undilated bile duct with very thin wall. So the hepaticojejunostomy that we do for cancer surgery, like for example Whipple's, where it's an obstructed bile duct with quite a large diameter, that you are never going to get That's that. That's forgiving. In, yeah, yeah, and you're never going to get that in a biliary reconstruction for bile mm. duct injury. So you need to be extra careful in doing that biliary reconstruction. Okay, so if we talk about the more common scenario, which is that the surgeon did the operation, there was an injury, but it wasn't detected at the time of the procedure, and we've uh, ascertained that, that happens in at least four-fifths of cases. Once you identify the injury, what happens next? So this is, as you said, this is the more common presentation, isn't it? You know, presenting late. And by late, I mean the patient has been discharged home following what was thought to be a straightforward lacoli. And the patient has come back into the hospital with some symptoms. Mm. Symptoms of sepsis or symptoms of abdominal pain, abdominal distension. Jaundice. Jaundice. So the patient comes in at that stage. The first thing I always follow and I tell all my trainees that if a straightforward lap coli patient comes back into hospital, do not ignore it. Okay, A straightforward lap coli patient will not come back into hospital unless there is a problem. Mm. Okay, So if you look at um, all the litigations that happen from bile duct injury cases, the majority of the argument that is put against the surgical team who has caused the bile duct injury is not the injury itself because the patients understand that this is a complication of an operation. The complaints are almost always against the fact that it was ignored and it wasn't picked mm. up quick enough. Uh, and it is not uncommon for patients to attend A&E or attend an ad- a surgical admissions unit uh, and uh, given a bit of painkiller and say, you'll be fine, you just had an operation and discharge. You must at least do an ultrasound. Mm. Okay, So you should not ignore it. That's, okay. that's, that's point number one. So what are the things that it can present with? You know, you have looked at the bloods, there's a slightly abnormal liver function test, the bilirubin is slightly high, and you've done an ultrasound, it shows a lot of um, fluid in the abdomen. Mm. Okay, What are you going to do, Eamon, from your point of view? Uh, so, that's, so I think it depends on the clinical scenario itself. So if this patient presented acutely unwell, tachycardic, and there's bile in the drain... Mm-hmm. Um, or let's assume, let's, okay, let's, let's see if there wasn't a drain. It was a straightforward and you went home. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, unwell, and I have very strong suspicion of a, a, a post operative complication, possibly a bile duct injury. I would have a low threshold of just taking them back to theatre and laparoscoping them again, mm-hmm. particularly if it happens sort of within 24, 48 hours. 
If Can I interrupt you there for a minute? For example, I told you that we have done an ultrasound. It shows okay, so you've done, okay, so this is a specific scenario where you've actually done an ultrasound yeah, first. Uh, would you want to do any more imaging? Or would I, you want to I do- would. I would. I think, I think and, and this is debatable, I have to mm-hmm. say. Uh, some people would go by ultrasound imaging and say, actually, just take back to theatre. My personal opinion on this is get a CT scan, get a proper CT scan, if possible, I mean, you can always get a standard venous phase scan, but if you can get an arterial phase as well, you can preempt what kind of damage has been caused. Equally, it will tell you, you know, whether there's been devascularized liver, you know, what the extent of um, biliary peritonitis you've got. So I would definitely get a CT scan, preferably a quadruple face CT scan. And I appreciate that this is not something that you can always get. Yeah, but I mean, what you are saying is absolutely correct. You know, that's what I would do. However, after cross-sectional imaging, if you feel that the patient has a bile leak, the CT shows lots of free fluid in the abdomen, hasn't got a drain, the patient is septic. I completely agree with you that you are going to laparoscope the patient Mm -hmm. again. But what would be the aim of that laparoscopy? What are you trying to achieve there is the question. So as a non-HBB surgeon, what you're aiming is damage control uh, or sepsis slash bile leak control. Mm -hmm. So you're going in, you're going to do a washout and you're going to put plenty of drains. What you're not going to do is try and attempt to repair, unless you can see a very clear Strasbourg A uh, cystic uh, duct with clips swimming in a pool of bile and you can yeah. apply another, you may, and I, I still wouldn't, you know, yeah. if, if, if visibility is poor and you're not quite sure and your anatomy is not clear, I wouldn't even advise that. I would just say put drains in and bail out. I think that is that is absolutely the right advice. In a, even if you go back into laparoscope very early, within the first 48 hours, it's pretty rare for you to be able to see that area clearly enough to figure out whether it is a cystic duct stump which mm. is leaking. You, yeah. What you would see is, is my leak. And... The correct approach is, as you mentioned the word, damage control, mm. uh, proper washout, four-quadrant washout, uh, and adequate drainage. Mm. Almost the same principle as what we talked about early identification if the HPV surgeon wasn't, wasn't going there. to yeah. So the aim would be the same. The aim would be to control the bile leak and control sepsis. Okay. That brings me to uh, joining this to what we said earlier about an early detection. So yeah. it's kind of almost converging to that area again, Mm. but only two days later. Mm. Where do you draw the line at the HBB surgeon saying, I can't repair this anymore. It's a bit too late Mm. from the time of injury. Okay, so we have to get over this gray area, isn't it? You know, so the early phase we have talked about, identified at the time of injury and maybe the first 48 hours. Mm -hmm. Okay, and if if it is within the first sort of 48, 72 hours, there's no very strict cutoff, isn't mm. it? Within the first 72 hours, if you have got a patient, you can argue that you are going to do a definitive repair. The gray area appears once it is beyond that. Mm. Okay, there are centers who would say that up to about five to seven days, so mm. maybe it's, let's say up to about a week, mm. you would attempt an early repair. Mm. In my experience, once you go beyond 72 hours, the amount of inflammation that you get in the hilum doing a decent repair becomes really very difficult. Mm. Okay. Also, if the patient has presented a little bit late after 40 or 72 hours, by the time you have had a laparoscopy, washout, drainage, uh, you are imaging, you're kind of beyond that phase where I would feel comfortable doing an early repair. Mm. So I think definitely beyond three to five days, one should not attempt an early repair. Mm. And most of the large studies would support that view. 
So either you do it early or you don't do it and do a late. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is how late is late? Yes. If you haven't done an early repair, then for six weeks, you have to sit tight. Okay. Okay. And in the six weeks, your idea of managing the patient would be exactly the same as what we talked about, controlling sepsis and controlling bile leak. Mm-hmm. So as long as you've put adequate drains and the bile leak is well controlled, you would not touch the biliary system for six weeks. And this is a good opportunity for you to start imaging. Yeah, you, you have know, getting a, the gold standard MRCP here, just looking at the absolutely. anatomy. Yeah, absolutely. Clearer. The anatomy, the vascular anatomy. Phase, if you haven't, uh, everything, you've got an opportunity to do that. And what I would also recommend is that in six weeks down the line, if you are then attempting a formal repair, you are in a much more controlled situation. Mm-hmm. Sepsis is under control, you would hope. And you would want to have an up-to-date cross-sectional imaging at that stage As well. before you do a laparotomy for the repair. The only reason why you would operate in between that like five days to six weeks is if you are not getting adequate control on sepsis. Otherwise, there is no reason why one should. And what about jaundice? Because that's another problem that you get with bile duct injuries occasionally. Mm-hmm. So if you've actually clipped distally, what would you do in these cases? Because you can no longer access these via ERCP. Well, in, in many cases you can't, yes. But what, what would you do? Just to take you back, Eamon, to the classical injury that we talked about. Why would the patient get jaundice if it if it is completely clipped? Okay, you will get a slightly abnormal liver function test. Maybe bilirubin will go up a bit. If you have got a bile leak, if you've got a transection or a bile leak, the bilirubin will not keep on climbing. That's mm. what usually happens. Mm. But going back to the classical injury that we talked about, where we have clipped the bottom and the top, and remove the portion of the bile duct, yeah. the patient will definitely start going jaundice. Yeah. And that is, in a sense, a much better situation than having bile leak. Okay. Because you would get the patient jaundiced, but will not go septic that easily unless the patient develops cholangitis. Mm. So if you have got a complete occlusion of the bile duct by clips, then if you do an imaging... You would see biliary dilatation. You would do, a, as you were talking about, MRCP. By the way, there is no contraindication for doing MRCP when you've got clips there. This is a question which gets asked mm. quite often, uh-huh. that can you do an early MRCP? The answer is obviously yes, you can. If you do an MRCP, if you see that you have got a complete occlusion of the bile duct, then the situation is much better in the sense that you haven't got a bile leak, you haven't got a right mess around the hilum, you've got a controlled bile duct, which is just going to dilate within the next you know, a couple of days. Which I suppose is good because surgery is going to be easier yeah. to do. So in that kind of a situation, if you get a patient like that whose presentation the day after lap coli or two days after lap coli is with, with, with bilirubin rising very rapidly and your imaging confirms a completed occluded bile duct, you should go ahead and operate. Okay, all yeah. right. You should go ahead and operate because you, you haven't got a septic patient mm. and you haven't got a bile leak. Mm. Okay, so that is a much better condition than a transaction with an ongoing bile leak. Okay, what about these Strasbourg B and C's? So, so specifically speaking, Strasbourg B, where you haven't actually clipped, you know, the major outflow of bile mm-hmm. from the liver, but you've clipped a sectoral sort of right posterior yeah. branch. And so, and so, the, so the jaundice here, I presume, is, is, is a bit more delayed. Yeah, there is a very significant proportion of the Strasbourg B or C patients, I mean, not C, C would have a leak, isn't yeah. it? The B patients will not present with any symptoms at all, okay? Because what you have done is you've occluded a sectoral duct. Yeah. 
the patient probably have had an abnormal LFT without having any symptoms mm. and it will go completely unidentified. But if they do present, they would present with abnormal function test. You do an imaging, for example, an MRCP, you will see a sectorial duct dilatation. Okay. Now, you do not necessarily need to go and repair that. Mm. Okay, You would treat it conservatively and see what happens to the liver function test. Obviously, quite often there will be an overlap of drainage between the right posterior and right anterior ductal system and it will settle down. So a B will not necessarily need repair. Okay. What I'm perhaps talking about is the E, which is a transection, but it's completely occluded by clip, right. which is quite common, isn't it? Mm. And if by chance you've detected an E late, mm-hmm. which is you know, unlikely, mm-hmm. but if you do, I suppose what, should, what I should be asking is, would you consider a PTC in those patients? Yes, if the patient was septic, uh, cholangitic, I mean, it's a no-brainer, mm-hmm. but if they came in jaundiced with a bilirubin of 300, 400, but stable, and they're in that scary period between the first week and the sixth week of waiting post-lactory. Yes. So that, that is a very specific question you ask, and it is, it, is, it is a problem we do face, isn't it? You know, the patient is presented with jaundice, and it is in that phase where we don't really want to go and operate. And that is the only sort of situation where I think biliary drainage will be required because if you allow the bilirubin to keep creeping up to, uh, I know there's a lot of studies, especially on the malignant sector as to what is a safe bilirubin to operate. But here we are saying that I am going to wait for six weeks before we operate. And if you allow the bilirubin to creep up, obviously you will get problems of back pressure, including you have an undrained system. So the patient will get cholangitic and the jaundice will keep on getting worse. So yes, there is a role of temporary PTC. It will be an external drain, of course. And uh, what you will end up is you will require good care of the drain so that it doesn't fall Fall out. Mm. Um, And obviously, after six weeks, you'll you'll be performing a repair most likely a hepatic adjectinostomy. Mm-hmm. But what about the role of liver resection? When would you okay. when would you perform a resection? Okay, so that, that is, um, in, in my experience, it is very rarely that you need a liver resection. Mm-hmm. Uh, having, having said that, in an other extreme, in our unit, we have ended up requiring liver transplantation for bile duct injury. And, and it is well reported mm-hmm. that the you know, major bile duct injury with vascular injury has required liver transplantation. So liver resection, for example, if you look at the E3 and above, especially 4, where you have got a separation of the right and left ductal system, Mm -hmm. getting to a bile duct with good anastomosis capability is very difficult without actually taking segment 4B of the liver. So that is a situation where we would, at the time of biliary construction, take segment 4B off and do a biliary reconstruction. That's because you haven't got the confluence intact. However, there's a problem of liver resection at the time of biliary reconstruction. And I'm not talking about a right hepatectomy or something like that, okay? Because if, if you know, I don't know whether you are talking about liver resection in that context. That's, that, that's what I meant, but this is actually more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we'll come to that liver resection as well. So we are talking about a biliary reconstruction mm. with a portion of liver removed to allow for the biliary reconstruction. Mm. So this is the worst kind of injury where the hilum is completely disconnected. So the right and left duct system is separate. It is a difficult reconstruction to do, and we would do a segment 4B resection in order to get to the bile duct. The problem with it is that the segment 4B resection can also 
compromise the vascularity of that bit of the bile duct where you are actually putting the anastomosis. So this is perhaps the worst kind of biliary reconstruction that you end up having to do. Having said that, luckily, it's not that common. Mm. As I said, the commonest one is where the hilum is intact or in other words, Strasbourg E3. 3, rotten E4. Mm. So I think what you were asking was, for example, if you have got a bile duct injury with a right hepatic artery injury, for example. Yes, and you've got some right lobar atrophy or left lane, yeah. depending yeah. on where the injury is. So there, there, there is a role of doing a right hepatectomy. Mm-hmm. Okay, again, ideal would be a late, because what will happen is that the left side will have some time to hypertrophy. Okay, and then if you then try to do a biliary reconstruction without doing a right hepatectomy, the vascularity of the, of the reconstruction will be poor because the right hepatic artery is already gone. Okay, in that kind of a situation, a right hepatectomy is indicated. But as I said, this is a preferably a situation where you're doing a late intervention, let's say. not I wouldn't say use the word repair because you're not doing a repair really. Mm. Late intervention because that allows you to have adequate cross-sectional imaging to try and figure out whether that is the right treatment for it. So if the right lobe is ischemic, it's slowly atrophying, and has got no arterial inflow, then definitely you will take a decision to do a right hepatectomy. Okay. In your experience, and this is a, a two-pronged question, right. um, have you had to do some form of vascular reconstruction uh, at the time of repair? And if you have, has this been more commonly done in an early repair or in a late repair? Okay. So I have had to do vascular reconstruction during repair. And in my experience, I have done it twice. And both the times it was during an early repair. And there was an obvious right hepatic artery transected at the time of cholecystectomy. And since I was attempting an early repair, it is very important that you maintain as much vascularity to the proximal anastomosis as possible. So I did a vascular reconstruction both occasions. The aim of the vascular reconstruction in early repair is you need a good blood supply for the first like five days or seven days or whatever it requires for the anastomosis to heal. That's the crucial phase, isn't it? Because that's when the anastomotic leak will happen if you haven't got adequately vascularized proximal end of the bile duct. Whereas if it is a late repair you would expect that if there was a vascular injury which you haven't dealt with or it was unidentified at the time of repair, you would develop collateral by that time. So the chance of requiring a vascular reconstruction during a late repair is is low. Right. Um, And obviously if you have got a vascular injury and it's declared itself during the waiting period as a Mm -hmm. a pseudoaneurysm, obviously you would would deal with that uh, separately. By interventional radiology. And then obviously if that leads to any ischemia within the liver as yeah. you said earlier that will declare itself within yeah. that period so that, that those are the sort of rare situations but you will have to you know it, there is no right or wrong answer as i said in bile duct injury repair isn't it you will have to each individual case has its own special challenges so if you develop things like a aneurysm and you have to embolize it then obviously you will compromise vascularity again and then you will wait longer to see what effect it has on the liver and the liver's vascularity before you attempt any reconstruction. Mm. Okay, so we do talk about that six weeks as a late repair, but that's not that you know at six weeks you have yeah, to go and repair. Yeah, you can wait longer. Yeah, you obviously that's can. That's the wait minimum time. Absolutely. So I think, Eamon, um, we have all agreed as to the sort of timing of the repair. Um, we started talking a little bit about what sort of a repair we are going to do, isn't it? Hepatic mm. etc. So tell me, what are the basic principles 
of the biliary reconstruction? How mm. do how would you do it? So, without stating the obvious, I, w- I would first make sure that I have a good grasp of that individual patient's anatomy with uh, adequate imaging. So, you know, a CT scan, an MRCP, uh, to know exactly what I'm dealing with first. Uh, the next question is is how I'm going to approach this. You know, there are different ways of accessing the abdominal cavity. Um, some surgeons prefer a midline. Uh, personally, I think an inverted L incision as a HPV trainee would be a more preferable um, and a more comfortable approach. There is talk about uh, minimally invasive laparoscopic repair, but that I don't think is commonly practiced, certainly not in our institute. In terms of the actual repair, regardless of what kind of repair you go with, um, and I think we have ascertained earlier that it's not a good idea, generally speaking, to to try and attempt an end-to-end duct-to-duct repair, but for a hepaticojejunostomy, I think the main principles are that when you dissect, particularly if it's late, when you dissect around the hilum to try and figure out what's what, that dissection needs to be very careful because you are going to be dealing with tissue that's been exposed to bile for a while and has developed a strong fibrotic reaction to it. So it's not going to be a straightforward hilar dissection. You may cause injury in that period, but you do need a certain degree of dissection to A, identify your structures, and B, a tension-free uh, anastomosis. So you, you want your bile duct to be as relatively free as possible so that you can comfortably create your anastomosis. But what you don't want to do is over-dissect that distal bile duct that you're going to join to uh, a loop of jejunum that you devascularize it. Is it the distal or the proximal bile duct? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, um, so uh, the, the upstream. The upstream. So we call it upstream. The upstream yeah. Yeah. I think the ba- you're, you're absolutely right in, in the basic principles that you're going to follow for this anastomosis. You do not want too much dissection, mainly because, again, for the vascularity, isn't it? You don't want to devascularize the proximal bile duct where the anastomosis is going to happen with the loop of jejunum. The important points are vascularity and the size of the anastomosis. Mm. You want the anastomosis to be as wide as possible. Now, we talked about the bile duct being quite small. It's a normal bile duct. So what you want is the anastomosis to be as high and close to the hilum as possible so that you've got good blood supply and you can extend the opening into the bile duct towards the left, towards the left mm. ductal system in order to give you a bigger anastomosis. Uh, bigger anastomosis. You need to lower the hilar plate in order to get to that. Especially if it was an inflamed gallbladder, the hilum gets quite shrunken and you can't really get to the top unless you dissect in front of the hilar plate and lower it down. So these are the basic principles you would follow for the reconstruction. Big and size. Sorry, what? No, I was, I, was, I was going to mention the, the other side of the reconstruction, which is the rule limb. Rule limb, yes, of um, course. You know, it needs to be of adequate mm-hmm. length. What is the adequate length? Well, I would say um, there's a, a minimum, I think, of 50 centimeters, if not 70. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so 50 to 60 centimeter length you would want in the rule limb to Avoid any reflux. Reflux, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because this is now going to be exposed to the intestinal elements. Mm -hmm. Um, Having recurrent cholangitis with this is not unheard of. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of how you do your repair, you know, the question is whether it's going to be interrupted or continuous. I would personally do a posterior wall continuous and anterior wall interrupted using 5.0 PDS, single layer. I wouldn't necessarily use any stents within the anastomosis. 
and again, you know, adequate drainage before you complete the procedure, because there is still a risk of, of bile leak following the repair. I would, I would agree. I mean, I think um, as far as the suture material you mentioned, 5.0 PDS is something which is very commonly used. You can use all interrupted, which I suppose is the gold standard. Equally, posterior wall continuous and anterior interrupted is also used very safely. Uh, what you probably should not use is all continuous, single layer all around, because what you don't want is to have a purse string effect, mm -hmm. because it obviously makes the anastomosis narrower and also uh, makes the vascularity a little bit less optimum mm -hmm. because of the concerted effect. And yeah, adequate drainage, definitely. Because the incidence of having some degree of leakage of bile after this anastomosis is very common. So you need to have drains. Mr. Sen, thank you very much for your time today. I'm sure many of our listeners will find the topic that we discuss very useful and informative. Thank you very much, Eamon. Um, join me again in the next episode of Scrubcast, where we'll discuss the management guidelines of benign liver lesions. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye. Like there's, there's a lot of jazz in there. All under control. Oh.